I would urge folks to speak to some vets, to try to find people and, and ask them some specific questions because the recruiters, you know, will tell their version of events, but veterans have a far more textured, nuanced um, story to tell. And that includes positive elements as well. I mean, it, it is true that military service is really the last path, the last, you know, reliable path to the middle class. And so I understand a lot of the reasons to go through that. Um, but I just think that there needs to be a more holistic understanding of, um, of what that entails. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Support our troops is a familiar slogan heard most often when American troops are deployed abroad. But how do we actually support soldiers once they return home? Investigative reporter Jasper Craven has been exploring veterans and military issues for publications including the New York Times, Mother Jones, The Atlantic, and Vermont Digger. In a 2018 investigative series for Vermont Digger, Craven exposed the toxic culture of the Vermont Air National Guard, leading to Governor Phil Scott calling for a review of Guard policies. This spring, he wrote an expose for Mother Jones on neglect and abuse at Valley Forge Military Academy in Pennsylvania, a prestigious school that counts among its alumni General Norman Schwarzkopf, the architect of the First Gulf War. Craven, a Vermont native, has a new book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs, co-authored with Suzanne Gordon and Steve Early. I began by asking Craven how he became interested in covering veterans' issues. When I was in college, I spent a summer in Washington stringing for the Times Argus and the Rutland Herald. Uh, This was the summer of 2014, and Bernie Sanders was chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. There was some buzz at that point that he might be mounting what was then considered his long shot bid for president. He had gone to New Hampshire a few times, Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of attention being paid to him yet. And when I was in Washington there for the Argus and the Herald, I spent a lot of time covering his committee work. There was a major story that erupted that summer um, at a Phoenix VA hospital. There were allegations, essentially, that veterans were waiting weeks, sometimes months, um, to get in for care. There were also allegations of secret uh, waiting lists. Essentially, administrators were alleged to have sort of cooked the books to make their metrics seem better than they were. Bernie got wrapped up in this whole scandal um, and in the end crafted a bipartisan fix with John McCain called the VA Choice Act. Um, Bernie, as one can imagine, is a staunch defender of the VA and really sees it as, you know, providing really the strongest social safety net um, in America. Of course, the VA runs the largest nationalized healthcare system, largest integrated health system in America. 
It offers free college through the GI Bill. It offers pioneering housing programs, low interest home loans. These are things that veterans over many generations have fought fiercely for and secured. And without getting into all of the specifics of this scandal that erupted in 2014, it was clear that essentially right-wing Coke-backed actors had spun this story up, um, made a number of false or exaggerated claims to try to undermine the efficacy of government programs, of, of government subsidized and provided healthcare. So I really became interested in the VA covering that scandal and speaking, you know, to Bernie himself and some of his advisors about the VA and all that it did. I mean, it's such a sprawling system. It's the second largest agency in government, the Defense Department. And so then a few years later, when I was trying to figure out what beat to cover as a freelancer, the VA sort of emerged as a natural um, pick just because of all that it does and my familiarity with it from my time covering Bernie. Talk a little bit about the work you did in Vermont. Um, your reporting was instrumental in exposing uh, sexual harassment and assault at the Vermont Guard. What was that story and where does it stand now? Sure. Well, um, you know, as we all know, I mean, the Vermont Guard is in some ways the most famous guard unit in the country because of its um, roots dating back to the Green Mountain Boys, you know, these sort of mythological freedom fighters. Um, and so the Guard has long enjoyed uh, an incredible reputation in the state, and I think that's largely uh, deserved. Um, certainly we've seen the guards step in during COVID to set up field hospitals and offer food support and vaccinations. Um, but the guard has also, you know, um, come under fire. My first experience covering the guard was at Vermont Digger, where I wrote a series on the um, proposed basing of F-35 fighter jets at the Air Guard in South Burlington. And what became clear from that reporting was that the congressional delegation and other powerful players had certainly put their fingers on the scales to get these planes to Vermont. Um, and this was, you know, happening against vigorous and sustained um, opposition from the communities most affected by it. So through that work, I sort of learned how the Guard operated. I made some sources in the Guard. And then shortly after my F-35 reporting was released, I received a tip from a whistleblower um, who claimed that there was a serious issue with sexual misconduct in the Air Guard, that there was essentially a sort of uh, macho, heavy drinking, top gun culture. Um, and it's funny, we met sort of secretly at a number of diners around Vermont so he could suss me out and he would sort of, you know, give me little tips here and there and a little bit of information. It, it took, it was weeks and weeks of meeting with this fella, trying to gain his trust and trying to figure out what was going on in the guard. That eventually turned into months and months of work that led me all around the state 
And um, what we released was a seven part series that detailed serious sexual misconduct um, by guard members of all stripes, as well as a culture, a good old boy culture really of impunity. Uh, so not only was bad behavior happening, but then if you were a favored son, you could see this behavior um, covered up or um, sort of punished less. The most sort of famous example was the wing commander, the top dog at the air guard took a fighter jet through a snowstorm south to Washington to have an affair with another air guard official that this was all documented on his um, company email address, which I think sort of speaks to the level of impunity that he believed that he had. Um, that work has led to an assessment released uh, last year by the guard that actually corroborated a lot of claims that my report made and did um, speak to a persistent good old boys culture um, that many people, especially lower ranked uh, officials, as well as female guards member are still frustrated with. It, do you have any sense whether these issues have been addressed in any meaningful way as so as to prevent the, that, those kind of abuses in the future? Um, the current adjutant general, Greg Knight, has made a lot of promises to lawmakers and the public and the guard um, to fix this culture. And I think that he is putting in real work to make that happen through a number of policies. Uh, not all of them are being uh, uniformly um, enacted. I can say that for sure. Um, but one uh, one example is that he's basically created new positions to coordinate across units and also with civilian law enforcement to make sure that um, complaints properly sort of move up the, the chain and aren't sort of intercepted. And also that if a guard member gets in trouble in their civilian life for misconduct, that that impacts their guards career, their guard career and vice versa. So I think he is taking meaningful steps, though, I will say that I'm working on some guard reporting now about some um, persistent issues involving uh, mis alleged misconduct by uh, popular um, guard officials that doesn't seem to be uh, receiving the scrutiny and accountability that a lot of people hope for. And where will we see that reporting now that you have whetted everyone's appetite um, to see what's next? That reporting will be in VT Digger. Um, and, you know, I mean, if any of your listeners want to reach out with any more information they have about the Guard, I'm always uh, happy to hear it. And um, if you just Google my name, you can find my contact information. So you have uh, uh, had a piece in Mother Jones this spring uh, called Hazing, Fighting, Sexual Assaults, How Valley Forge Military Academy Devolved into Lord of the Flies. Uh, kind of an extension of the reporting and themes that you were probing in Vermont, uh, but now taken to one of the nation's top military academies. What did you find there? I think that having covered the Guard 
now having reported about this military school in Pennsylvania, I, I see a lot of issues, um, potential pitfalls, I should say, around the military structure. You know, there's a lot of talk about the chain of command, but there's less discussion about how one, uh, one sort of missing link in that chain or one dysfunctional link in that chain can lead to a whole host of issues. And so this school, Valley Forge, it's actually where J.D. Salinger went as a boy, and it's what inspired the catcher in the rye. Um, it's also churned out a, a bunch of uh, a, a book quick. that is commonly banned, uh, or at least in in a previous iteration of book banning, I should say, because in the current iteration, uh, that one, it kind of pales um, in. But anyway, notable yes. to many for that reason. Absolutely, absolutely. It's also churned out folks like H.R. McMaster, who was Trump's former national security advisor, all, a lot of those folks. And, you know, it, it, it's long enjoyed a sterling reputation, as has the military. I think in recent years, there has been a more critical eye placed on some of these institutions, whether it's the Guard or the military writ large or a place like Valley Forge. And what I found at the Forge is essentially a culture um, of abuse, aggression, um, you know, to be frank, sort of white male dominance that, that is out of control. Um, I spoke to dozens of former cadets as well as administrators. I, I, I reviewed legal documents, um, school documents. And basically what I found is a system that is built on the very shaky idea that pain and punishment can forge leadership. And this is really an ideal that, that exists in every military school in America, as well as across the Defense Department. And it's one that has left a lot of casualties in its wake and still continues to. I mean, a real sort of shocking element with a school like Valley Forge is that there are kids as young as 11 or 12 who are experiencing pretty shocking abuse. I mean, we're talking about branding ceremonies, forced sodomy, um, you know, incredible violence, um, sexual misconduct. I mean, it really runs the gamut and it's pretty disturbing stuff, but there is still a sort of persistent idea that that sort of um, suffering is sort of good for a man and sort of builds up a man's character and it's necessary. So that's really what I was focusing on with the book, with the, with the story. Well, let's move to your new book, um, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs um, that you co-authored with Suzanne Gordon and Steve Early. What inspired you to write this book and talk a little bit about what you were trying to accomplish with it? Yeah, well, I think that there, I think we were trying to create a bit of a corrective to the history of veterans affairs in America and also really to send a bit of an alarm on the current state of veteran life in America. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, veterans do enjoy a host of generous benefits, whether that's healthcare, free college, um, you know, some of the best uh, mental 
healthcare specifically available, um, job training programs, etc. However, um, these programs were only secured through incredible agitation from veterans over the decades, protest, sometimes violence, really uncompromising action. Um, and, and now these, ish, the, the, these benefits are really under threat. Um, you can see that in legislation that is um, defunding or outsourcing these services. You can also see them in for-profit colleges like the University of Phoenix that basically have snookered hundreds of thousands of veterans for their GI Bill dollars um, and offered a, a, a lousy education in return. And so I think what we were trying to do with the book is look at how ideological interests, many of them who are hell-bent on um, weakening and shrinking government, as well as corporate interests like private healthcare um, companies are seeking to sort of monetize these benefits and, and really sort of offer veterans subpar services in the process. So really what we're doing here is documenting that trend, as well as sort of trying to understand how veterans' political beliefs are shifting you know, we, we frankly take a pretty close look at at extremism in the military at, you know, the well, let's let's talk about that, because that has been one of the more shocking things coming out of the January 6th committee and other investigations that uh, both law enforcement and fo former military comprise a, a pretty shocking <laughs> number of the people who have been charged in the Capitol insurrection. What, what do we know about extremism in the military? There is um, a documented history dating back to the Civil War that after every conflict that America has engaged in, there is a corresponding spike in white supremacist violence. This is very well documented. Um, I would suggest people interested in hearing more uh, read the work of Kathleen Ballou, who is a University of Chicago political scientist who writes about this frequently. Um, but, you know, this trend makes sense. I mean, if you look at Vietnam, for instance, there was an incredible amount of racism and xenophobia that drove that conflict. And there was a corresponding um, there were corresponding outbreaks of violence towards Vietnamese and Asian people after that war ended. You can see an incredibly similar trend in our post 9-11 conflicts. And so, you know, the military has, has, has it figured out how to sort of radicalize people in, in, in service of its mission. And that's really what it is. I've talked to dozens of veterans who have described it as a radicalization. Um, but a, a radicalization of these kind of extremist elements or uh, how do you mean the term? I think just a rat, sort of a broad radicalization of 
of someone's thinking on America and on their own place in it. You know, I mean, you really have to radicalize someone to make them willing to risk their lives for this country. And so I think that, you know, and, and that's not to say that that should never happen or that the military should be abolished or anything like that. But I think that the Pentagon has historically um, failed to sort of do the work to transition service members back into civilian life and sort of try and, and it's it's difficult it might even be impossible because once you're sort of in that mindset it can be very difficult to sort of go back to normal living and so many people return home and they still have this mission where they want to fight they want to identify an enemy and they can very easily get wrapped up in these radical groups and they're especially sought after because of the military skills that they hold so you're talking about the process of becoming a soldier is itself a process of radicalization that leaves people vulnerable to manipulation by other groups, extremist groups that also demand unquestioning loyalty. Um, earlier, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had, had called for a global stand down in the military to address radicalization. What do you think that accomplished? And, and did they learn anything in the course of doing that about the extent of extremism within the ranks? From what I hear from my military sources, most of the work at this point has been optics and little more. Um, I mean, you know, and that's largely because of the power of veterans groups and the sort of, you know, really overwhelming positive image of veterans in civic life. There was actually a 2006 report authored by um, the Department of Homeland Security that identified concrete links of white supremacist groups who were recruiting veterans into their ranks. This report was actually suppressed by the largest veterans group in the world, the American Legion, because they did not want any sort of negative press that would acknowledge the fact that there is a, you know, a small minority, of course, but a minority nonetheless of veterans who are becoming involved in this sort of activity. And um, I think that 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 sort of, you know, willful ignorance persists today. You report in Our Veterans uh, in terms of the political allegiance of veterans that uh, nationwide 60% of all veterans cast their ballots for Trump. I think that was in 2016 you were writing. Was there much change between 2016 and 2020 in terms of veterans' vote? There unfortunately wasn't as good um, polling data in 2020 when it came specifically to veterans, um, but certainly veterans um, broke for Trump in in pretty major ways um, in 2016 and in 2020. I mean, in fact, 2016 when when there was very close analysis of these numbers. Trump got a historic showing of veterans, higher than John McCain had in 2008, who himself was a decorated war veteran. 
And obviously Trump's record and rhetoric towards veterans is pretty terrible. I mean, he, he compared his own sexual exploits in the eighties to serving in Vietnam. You know, he certainly on paper does not seem to be the ideal veteran candidate. And so then frankly, you know, that, that begs some difficult questions about what elements of his agenda veterans were attracted to. And there is of course the original, uh, biographical point of Trump that he received five draft deferments. Yes. Why doesn't that offend people who are in uniform, who are sacrificing so much to do what they do? I think that that it's an incredibly good question and an incredibly difficult one to answer. Um, I think, frankly, a, a charitable reading is that Trump's um, pledged to sort of make America great again and sort of remove ourselves from overseas resonated with veterans because they were frankly tired of being deployed over and over again. Um, and I think that's also why, I mean, you know, in 2020, the, the two candidates with the most um, donations from active duty service members were Trump and Bernie. And Bernie, of course, was making similar arguments about the need to sort of shrink our military engagements overseas. So I think that's what drove some of um, the support. I think also, frankly, most politicians give a sort of passing nod to veterans and there's not much engagement beyond that. It's sort of thank you for your service and not much else. To his credit, Trump um, released a, a incredibly detailed plan on veterans and actually, you know, you can argue his, his signature policy achievements were a series of anti-labor and um, privatization veterans policies that were spun as sort of pro-choice and pro-accountability. Um, so he, you know, he also really spent the time speaking to legitimate frustrations that veterans had, but I think often was, um, you know, offering poor policy prescriptions. Then, you know, there are just the elements of xenophobia and white supremacy and, and things like that. Finally, in our veterans, you chronicle a lot of the underbelly of what happens to servicemen, high rates of suicide, organizations that purport to represent veterans that actually fleece them. What concerns you most right now that you're wanting to look into? Sure. Well, I mean, I will say that I am overwhelmed with tips about nonprofits and private companies that are alleged to have ripped off veterans. Um, so this is, a, this is a major issue. And there sort of exists this mentality, again, in America today, that is a sort of purported support of this community. But that's, that's really it, you know? And, and it's frankly one that is patriotic, jingoistic a lot of the time, and doesn't sort of see the issues beyond this, you know, flashy American flag waving image. So I, I really do worry that we are disconnecting from this community. We don't really understand them. I think, you know, as the population shrinks of service members and it's sort of confined to a family business, often in 
poor rural communities. Uh, we just sort of, you know, we risk alienating these people and, and, you know, alienation, of course, can lead to radicalization. And so I think that there needs to be a discussion, an engagement with these people. I think we need to listen to them to meet them on their level and try to offer an alternative vision of how to support them and also how to give voice to many of their legitimate grievances, including what I would argue are some of the most potent critiques of war making that exist today. You have the benefit of speaking to people often at the end of their military service. What do you want to say to people who are considering beginning military service based on the things that you've learned? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, you know, I think that, I think that I have seen both the damage and the benefits that can um, emerge from military service. And I think that, you know, some people think that if they get in the military, so long as they're not put on the front lines, that everything can be sort of fine and they'll, you know, get out and, and it'll all be good. But frankly, you know, military service is one of the most physically and mentally punishing jobs in America. I mean, boot camp alone is is can be really, really terrible. Um, and then if you add in things like military sexual trauma, intense hazing, things like this, you know, it's it's really a pretty um, a, a pretty intense experience. So I, I guess I would just I would urge folks to speak to some vets to try to find people and and ask them some specific questions because the recruiters you know, will tell their version of events, but veterans have a far more textured, nuanced um, story to tell. And that includes positive elements as well. I mean, it, it is true that military service is really the last path, the last, you know, reliable path to the middle class. And so I understand a lot of the reasons to go through that, um, but I just think that there needs to be a more holistic understanding of, um, of what that entails. Well, Jasper Craven, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. My pleasure.